right, here we go. Hey there, welcome to the Cause and Effect podcast, where we talk about the human stories and lives of entrepreneurs and changemakers. This is your host, Ryan Buchanan, and I'm here with my dad, Bob Buchanan. He happens to also be the best man in my wedding 19 years ago, and my life and business mentor, who invariably has a life lesson in nearly every conversation we have. Can be exhausting, but it's endearing. Dad is a third generation real estate developer and has run Buchanan Partners in the greater Washington, D.C. area for nearly 50 years. The core of what Dad believes in is family first and community a close second. Welcome to the show, Dad. Glad to be here. I'm anxious to hear how you're going to show all these great life lessons. Yeah. So part of why um, I'm, have, I'm interviewing mom yesterday as an entrepreneur and you today is um, the folks that I interview in on this podcast, we have created kind of a community of getting together once a month for um, digital happy hours in this whole new coronavirus world of not being able to see each other in person. And and one of the things that we start off with as we go around in a circle, um, I guess on a Zoom call, uh, that kind of circle, but is what's good in your world. And so for me, my answer um, is that it's, it's, this has brought family closer together. Um, as you know, Dad, we did a birthday call with my daughter Grace uh, last night of the whole family calling in from all over the country to wish her a happy birthday and tell her tell one thing they love about her and going around that way. And then we do our family calls every Sunday night. And so um, I just thought, well, gosh, now I know that geography isn't a barrier. It's not like um, you have to be in Oregon to uh, for me to interview you on this. So I thought, what better way than to kick this off and uh, and my first question uh, that I always ask folks is, or is how we first met, and you might remember that better than I would. So I thought you you might share a little bit on that. Sure. Well, I had the the crazy part was I got picked up by the police for speeding on the way to the hospital, taking your very pregnant mother because she was going to be induced and had a scheduled time for the baby to be born. And on the way, I got a little fast because I was nervous. I wanted to make sure she was there before things started happening in the car. And lo and behold, a policeman pulled me over. And for the first time in my life, I really had a good excuse for why I was speeding. And the officer offered to uh, lead the way if that was necessary. And I said, no, I'll drive slower, but thank you very much. So that was on the way to the hospital. And then when we were, you were used to a lot of police interaction though, right? So you, this was not a problem. I was not used to anything like that. I was mortified that I had been picked up by being careless actually. Anyway, at the hospital, Mom and I had done this child preparation Lamaze and where the husband participated with the wife and helped the breathing, helped calm, and all the things that we had trained for, for your delivery, I was told by the nurse that I was doing it all wrong. The, the 
way I was putting my hand on mom's knee was going to cut off a blood flow. And all of a sudden, all these weeks and months of preparation were thrown down the drain as I had to stand back and do something that we hadn't tried to do or worked on. But it worked out fine. You came out just fine and healthy. And once again, the miracle birth proved itself. And here we go. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's great. I, I love the, the, the family lore of these stories that, um, that we can relish as we tell them uh, now. One, so, one thing he, the doctor did say that I thought was something I had never thought of, you were coming out so fast by the time mom was induced and the doctor didn't even have time to put on his gown, his mask, etc. And he said, try whistling. And, and Sharon's trying to say, why whistle? And she's, and basically the doctor said, have you ever tried to take a crap while you're whistling? You can't do it. So that'll slow the baby down. So ah, never heard you, that part of the story. You, you were the part, you were the whistling man. Great. Uh, um, okay. That's a, that's a great visual. <laughs> um, so uh, you are a man who's known to go deep right away. So I thought I'd um, follow in suit. And uh, you and I were having a phone conversation a couple weeks ago about spirituality. And I was digging deep on that. And it ultimately led to kind of life purpose. And what I picked up from you in that conversation was kind of leadership is everything and really um, being a leader in the community, leader in your family, things like that. And so I just wondered, um, you know, what do you want to be remembered for? You've got, let's say you've got 20 years left on earth and, um, you know, <laughs> uh, you're, you're intentional about a lot of things. And so I just wanted to kind of boil it down and see what, you know, what, you think you'll will be the thing that really sticks with your life? Well, first of all, leadership isn't everything. Sometimes you need to be a good follower. And I cite that because I once was, I had a college roommate who became Mr. Planet. And he, uh, he later became Dean of the School of Environmental Studies. And, and a bunch of us raised money so that he could could bring in the best faculty and students. And along and the short of it was, he was so far ahead of anything I could have ever imagined that I just simply said, what can we do to be the best followers you can have? And he basically said, raise more money for me so I can have the funds to build this program to where it is world-class. So I don't wanna just dwell on being a leader because I think sometimes it's just as important to be a good follower. Having said that, I do feel that um, I, I was groomed to be a leader, uh, both from my father's uh, leadership in his business. He was a home builder and became president of the National Association of Home Builders. So I was aware of the leadership ladder, if you will. And that was always intriguing to me. And then serving in the Navy and being in a leadership position there, and then coming back and, and working as a in the development business, uh, didn't follow my father's footsteps, kind of went my own way, but I was surrounded by good leaders in the community doing work in the community, and 
that led to my involvement in public-private partnerships, which really established my leadership uh, as in the community. And so I guess you're asking about legacy. I would like to be thought of as someone who is a go-to person when you need help and he's there for you, whether you're family or a friend or, or a business associate, that uh, I'll do my best to come through in, in a time of need. And, and I think, again, though, being a good citizen is also something that means a lot to me because I think in being a good citizen, that's where you're trying to do things for your country. You're trying to do things for your community. You're trying to do the best you can to make that part of your world as successful as it can be for whomever. Yeah, I, um, I brought along this little book that I did for you on your 70th and yep. um, asked family members and um, friends throughout your life. And I think um, what I kind of took away from people's stories of, you know, different parts of your life and, and um, kind of life moments that were really special to a lot of people, probably 40 plus people who uh, wrote in. It is, I think you were on target. It's that sense of loyalty and consistency and kind of being a rock for others. And when I did the podcast interview with mom yesterday, that's what she described as you're her rock. And I think a lot of people in the family would say that and your close friends would say that. So I think that's kind of what you're getting at. I think, you know, you never really know what people are thinking and the best you can do is be open and honest, but also uh, as you listen to people and try to understand what they're issues are and being responsive to it. I think that's, uh, that's part of being a good leader or manager or, or, or friend. And I think I've been lucky enough to have had been around some pretty wonderful people who I learned from, and that was some of their skills were making sure they heard accurately what I was trying to say, or, or they wanted to make sure I heard them accurately. And, uh, mm -hmm. Cool. So next question, we're going to kind of um, shift, I mean, from a business standpoint on a specific element that's gotten a ton of press nationally, um, you were, you helped to found a, a community organization around economic, economic development group for greater Washington DC area, which is known as a political town and um, not necessarily like the heart of business in, in, the country and so you're trying to kind of brand the region as being relevant to business and all that and you were a key contributor to helping to bring Amazon's HQ2, their second headquarter, to the greater DC area and um, I'm a little bit surprised you didn't mention that as part of your legacy because I think that's kind of a specific thing that is really huge for the region. I was going to have you describe like how that how it came to be and um, and your role in it? Well, as I mentioned before, I've been involved in a lot of public-private partnerships, and uh, one of those that I was involved in when uh, Amazon came out with their request for information, they called it. I was chair of Montgomery County Economic Development Corp, and one of the things that 
turned out to be unique about this whole thing was it was it was the most far-thinking innovative uh, request by a company looking to see why it should locate where and it really forced all of us in responding to that to look at things that we never looked at before and one of the things that I, I was very impressed that we did and I was a part of organizing that is instead of marketing the region in, by individual jurisdictions we went and commissioned a through the council of governments which is the overall political uh, congress if you will of the local jurisdictions uh, hired a, uh, a company called data story to do an analysis of the region as a whole where we lived where we worked uh, the cost of living the educational uh, scholastic attainments by our workforce and instead of pitting Maryland against Virginia or one of the counties against each other like we normally do, we just sold the region. And it was the first time the region realized how many assets it's had that were unknown to many of us. And when I attended the board meeting, the COG board meeting, when this report was being uh, presented, uh, it, the, the shock, of realization of just how much better we were than we thought we were really was electrifying and it I think it gave us energy to go out and work together and and show how if Amazon were going to move into our area their people weren't going to just necessarily live in one specific jurisdiction they'd be living all over and the quality of life and the caliber of our workforce eventually caused them to give us to be on the short list. And on the short list were three jurisdictions in our, in our region. And so we all felt that we had won. And I think we learned a lot from Amazon. And one of the things I learned was the importance of workforce development. How does academia interact with the workforce? What can we, we Amazon, how can we know that we're gonna be hiring the most innovative uh, talented workforce from within this region if we locate there. So that generated a whole new bond, if you will, between academia and, and, and the market. It was probably the University of Virginia grads that sold it on it. Yeah. Well, let's just say it was more than that. And Virginia Tech, much to the horror of Mason and other UVA, and UVA Virginia Tech was poised, ready, and willing to bring in a billion dollar campus, if you will, which is not too shabby. Um, and they're, they're gonna be very innovative. So the greater DC area is like six or six to seven million. And yeah. so why, why is it such a big deal that 50,000 jobs, um, or it was gonna be 25,000 and then New York had 25,000, but New York, basically said, we don't want you, Amazon, after they got there. And so it's 50,000 high paying jobs. Why does that matter that much when there's, you know, millions of other jobs there? Well, it, I didn't answer your question very well initially, but so I'm glad you asked this part. So we had been a federal city. We had federal town that was generating the jobs. It was generating through federal contractors, the growth and the 
economy. And just as an example of how much we had grown, it was from 1980-ish, uh, the federal outsourcing dollars was, I'm gonna be off of my numbers, but let's just say $4 billion. By the year 2010, that $4 billion had grown to $84 billion. So that was a huge growth for us, and especially in the real estate, commercial real estate, because of office growth and stuff like that. But we were so known as a federal town that no one thought we could do anything else, yet we have the highest hospitality, uh, number of hospitality uh, companies here. We have a lot of startups, uh, people who have very entrepreneurial, like you, who have wanted to work here and provide services for better uh, uh, software, if you will. How, how helpful was it to have a prominent leader say, drain the swamp over and over again? This was before his time, thank God. But the point was, and you ask how we were trying to, 2030 was trying to rebrand the region for something other than being a federal city dependent on federal contracting. So to have an Amazon come and say, we want to be a part of this too. And Amazon is not known as a federal contractor. Amazon's known for all the other things and not necessarily distribution. That was a big incentive for us to do what we could to attract them, to show that we were uh, capable of being like another city that didn't have the federal government uh, to, to pay for everything or decide everything for us. And, I, and I, one other thing I'd mention on this is I think one of the things that proved to us that we could work together as a region that we had never done before because we'd relied on the federal government, there was a Metro funding, our, our transit system is called Metro for lack of a better word, and rail and bus. And every year, they had to go hat in hand to get the funding for their budget that year from the jurisdictions and, and some from the federal government. And we determined that we would never be able to, those of us involved in the HQ2 process, said we're never going to get an Amazon to come and take us seriously if our transit system is living hand to mouth. We have to have dedicated, sustained, sustainable funding. So a group was formed called Metro Now to make that happen. That happened, and that was the first time we realized we all could work together on something that was going to be beneficial for the region. And that led to that sense of cooperation and led to the, the sense of if we're able to get Amazon, doesn't matter if they're in Maryland, Virginia, Virginia, or the district, we're all going to win. And I think that feeling continues to this day. Okay. That, that was a... That was a huge win. Um, we are going to go back in time 70 years oh. and start at the beginning with um, Bob Buchanan's little boy in Kensington, Maryland. And I just wanted to give our listeners uh, a sense of what life was like back then. You have three younger sisters and, uh, you know, mom and dad who are super engaged in the family and very loving family, but what, uh, you know, yeah, what kinds of activities were into and what was it like way back, way back yonder? Way back. Well, I'm sure I'll, I won't say half the things I probably should say, but mom had four of us in 
five years. So we were, and I was the oldest and I was the only boy. So we were, I would say, very similar to all the other families, the middle-class family. Uh, school uh, education was really important for, from our family standpoint because my father has, was lucky enough to have gone to college during the Depression. My mother couldn't go through to college because she got a scholarship but wasn't big enough for her to attend the school that she had been accepted to. So education was a big deal growing up. And the fact that my mother's mother, my grandmother, lived with us for a part of the year, and she was as well-read and, and, and loved education as the way forward in life. So I grew up with more focus on school and reading and learning to write as sports, as other things. And... Uh, my father was uh, becoming a successful home builder and he was very busy and uh, we had, I don't think we realized how well off we were until later when I saw how differently I had been sheltered from some of the uh, issues, I'll say inner city issues. We were living in the suburbs and uh, I was able to go to a good school and looking back, I thought I was very normal, but looking back, I realized I was very special to have had the caliber of education and the safety of the neighborhoods and the sense of, of uh, growth uh, as my father did well in business. And, uh, and, and we were able to travel some. And that picture you showed of the book, uh, he was a big fisherman. And that was a fishing trip where we were able to go on. So mm -hmm. it's funny how the perception of um your kids and i've i've said this before on with other a few one or two other folks who've been on this podcast but to me um i think some others in the community might see you as this like this very serious businessman so it just um there's a lot of other parts to you, but I mean, there's an element that I think you, as the oldest child, you were a little bit more serious than like mom being the youngest child and I'm the youngest child. So I am not as serious at all as you, but uh, what was that, the family dynamics like with you and your siblings? Well, being the boy and being the oldest, I was raised to make sure my sisters were okay. I was raised to take care of your sisters, make sure they're gonna be okay and we're counting on you. And I got that at a very early age. And, and uh, so we were all pretty close. And I was lucky enough that uh, they didn't cause me much harm and, and didn't tempt me to uh, do bad things because they were, they were, we were all pretty close and they've done very well. And, and, uh, and to this day, I, I think we're lucky that we have stayed as close as we are. Mm -hmm. So I know this question, which is a super basic question that all people get asked in America, I feel like at some point, but it, for whatever reason, it kept you up at night when I shared it with you a few days ago. But when you were eight or 10 year old boy, what did you want to be when you grew up? You know, I really can't remember, and to be honest with you, other than the typical thing, maybe I was going to be a, a cowboy or maybe I was going to, later on, I, I, I met a, 
a great novel and I wanted to be a spy and and uh and then I thought about being a in the in the military but I, they were fleeting I just I just wanted to do well in school and see what the options were and and at one time as much older I figured maybe I'd go into my father's business but then I didn't think I wanted that because I wasn't anywhere as near as good as he was and I didn't know what I was going to do uh, I would just press myself to get as successful as I could in the schoolwork. And fortunately, and we'll get into this, but fortunately, uh, my dad had con convinced me to go into the Navy right after college so I could be exposed to a lot more than I had been. As I said, I was looking back, I was probably more sheltered than, than I realized and getting exposed to the world through the Navy was, a, was an eye opener. So you talk about school a bit. You went, um, your dad went here as well, I believe, but you went to an all boys school uh, in Bethesda, Maryland called Landon. And you're one of the few people I've ever met who is so committed to that school like 60 years later um, with the alumni network and doing reunions and all of that. I mean, a lot of us, uh, I don't know, my connection was closer to my college friend than, than high school, but like how, how did a school like Landon um, create such loyalty for you? Um, yeah. Let's okay. Well, I can answer that, but I also want to say, I think I sent you all uh, email when I, left my last Yale class council meeting. So I've become close to my college group as well. But Lannan's, there were fewer of us and I'll just give you one anecdote that maybe it will explain uh, <laughs> why, why I stayed so close to Lannan. So at our 50th reunion, we hosted a dinner at our house and there were 42 of us that graduated and some 33 attended the 50th reunion. And we had a dinner and one thing led to another. And some of us stood up to comment on what Landon had meant to us and how we had gone and been successful in life from the things we learned at Landon. And at the table I was sitting at, there was a, uh, one of my classmates had brought his wife for the first time to a reunion and after about the fifth person stood up and talked about honor, integrity, and, and the values he had learned at Landon, she leans over to her husband and said, I thought you were the only asshole with these values. I can't believe I'm listening to four, 30 other guys sound just like you. And it made me laugh because I think we all got that value from not from each other, but from the faculty and the leadership at Landon. And at Landon, we were all very competitive and kind of in our own little cliques. But after graduation, we've come closer over the years because we realized how much we had, we had learned and how much we had valued. And again, that was kind of came out that 50th reunion dinner. Mm -hmm. um, what... I, I'll ask the, the next, I usually ask about like a obstacle or 
really defining moment that happened um, right when you graduate from high school and go to college or maybe right after college? And I'm thinking that you may answer that as um, going into the Navy right out of college. But I, um, what, I'll ask both of the questions at the same time. What made you decide to go to Yale and, um, and you know, also like what was there a moment that was really challenging in college that you um that was kind of defining for you to get through so i had been early i applied to three colleges uh yale princeton and uh cornell and i got early accepted at yale and princeton so i withdrew my application to cornell and the reason for yale was i considered it the best i could get into and Princeton was also a great school, obviously, but Princeton had the same suburban uh, campus that Landon had, and Yale was a city school, and I thought, okay, I, I'll learn more from that environment than a continuation of my Landon environment. But I had worked so hard to get into college and drove myself so hard that I I got into Yale and I kind of coasted for two years. I didn't like what I was doing. I was taking economics because my dad wanted me to go into business and you had to have an economic background to be successful in business and da, 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 da. And I found myself starting to cut classes, not caring about my grades as much, not being that driven straight A student I aspired to be before. And in the, Fall of my junior year, I just surprised myself. I went in and saw the dean, and uh, I just said, I'm not happy, I'm not doing well, this isn't who I am. And he gave me a great taking courses to learn, taking courses that you're never going to be exposed to that kind of stuff after you leave here, and what do you want to do, and what do you want to learn, and what interests you. And at the end of the, our meeting, I changed my major. I took a number of courses at his recommendation that he thought was really unique at Yale. And it changed the whole outlook towards education. My grades went from B minus, C plus to A plus, A and A plus. Uh, people couldn't believe I was doing as well as I was. And uh, I, I was delighted. And I, I took a history of art course that got me into art and architecture. I took political science courses that really helped me understand how things worked in the public sector. Uh, it was a great experience. But until, I, until that dean did his thing, I, I was one unhappy student there. Mm -hmm. So was this the same dean that you kept a letter that i have in your book 70th book where you broke a window and you didn't pay it back or that yeah no, that was that was another dean i didn't get to see the dean that was the campus cops that were concerned about me because uh we you had and the police go way back dad we had this macho thing and uh I drew the short straw and had to prove myself. And that was the stupidest thing I probably did in those four years. Done a lot of dumb things, but that was really stupid. And I'm lucky I didn't get thrown out. So tell me about how you and mom met and 
I asked mom this question and you haven't heard the her podcast yet. So I'm, we're going to compare notes to see how similar they are. So my one of my best friends, and I ended up being a roommate with him, was Larry Zahn from Oklahoma City. And he knew about this uh, girl from Oklahoma City who was going to a uh, freshman at uh, a junior college in New York called Briarcliff, and is just outside of New York City. So one thing led to another, and it was a blind date, and that's how we met. But I had, jumping way ahead, I had also grown up the son of a mother from Kansas City, Missouri, and uh, a father who was from this area, who fell in love with her Midwestern values and ways, and so I was comfortable with the Oklahoma uh, analogy, if you will, of me being from the East and me being exposed to those Midwestern values. And I, Larry Zahn epitomized all those fun things about the Midwest, smart, capable. And then when I met Sharon, it was a continuation of that. Although I didn't think we'd ever go anywhere because she was seeing the world. She was doing everything she could to get outside of Oklahoma to see the world. And she was not wasting a minute of college. She was taking it all in. She Was she giving you the Heisman sometimes, like a little bit of interest and then, you know, you know, take it oh, easy, Bob. I no, I think I think we didn't realize we, we became very good friends, and I thought we were going to have a wonderful platonic relationship. And it wasn't until oh, uh, we were sitting in a tree watching a bike race and just started to talk about things that weren't particularly thought through. Just one thing led to another and we found that we really were interested in what our values were and one thing led to another. We went to a dance in uh, New York City and through the college and I fell head over heels. But I also didn't know that I had fallen in love with her because I was dating another girl at the time. But I, when I realized that I kept comparing that other girl to Sharon, then I realized I was dating the wrong girl and it was over and for the one and, but I didn't know that I would be accepted by the other. So Got that's how it goes. And you and mom have been madly in love for 55 years of marriage and you've given me thousands of pieces of advice about all kinds of things. So I was wondering, if you could give some advice to all of us on uh, the secret to a long-standing happy marriage. Well, your mother doesn't like me to say this all the time because I use this adage more often than I should. But if you feel lucky to have, if each of you feels lucky to have the other, chances are that it's going to work out. And I make that not just for my uh, wedded happiness, but also partnerships and and doing business with people. If you feel lucky to be doing business with the person you're doing business with, chances are things are going to work out fine. And in my case, I've always felt very lucky that Sharon and I have been married and she's introduced me to so many things that I never would have been involved in had it not been for her. And it's really broadened my life and the birding, the art, you know, you name it, travel. 
but I've always felt very, very lucky. And when you feel lucky, you don't, you don't have bad days. You, 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 at the end of the day, you're lucky to be with the people you're with. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's good stuff. Um, I like it. Uh, this is a bit of a shift from talking about love to maybe more loyalty and values and, um, country first, uh, but why did you decide to go into the Navy right after college? And I didn't think about it until now, but didn't, wasn't granddad, even though he had polio, he was in the Coast Guard or? Yeah, yeah. yeah. he served in the Coast Guard because he couldn't be in the Navy, but he, uh, he, he wanted to serve. And I think it wasn't my decision as much as it was my father's decision. Um, in my Again, my elite education, having gone to a private boys' school and then being able to go to Yale, my dad wanted me to be exposed to uh, and be able to serve the country and at the same time be exposed to people who did not have that elite education but were just as smart, if not smarter than me. And so I enlisted in a program called ROC, Reserve Officer Candidate, and in my sophomore year. And the, in order to become an officer, you had to both go through OCS in the summer and graduate from that, as well as you had to graduate from college. If you didn't, you were going to be an enlisted person for the term of your tour. And if you did pass those things, you would get a commission as an officer. So that actually helped me a lot being enlisted men and seeing how men reacted to the leadership they they served under and what it what the what impressed the men as to what a good leader was and so i i got that perspective as well as being a junior officer of course getting the perspective from senior officers of what they expected of of me and 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 uh, it was a huge training life where I was being led by the best of the best, especially when I got into special operations. And I was fortunate to be in some amazing scenarios uh, under leaders and in some cases, my men and me, where I really got something I never could have gotten in an academic environment. So the Navy, I ended up in extending my time of service to one go to language school and then do the special operations. But that probably gave me the commitment on what a leader needs to do and the confidence of leading that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Yeah, in our conversations, long conversations, um, it seems like the Navy was a really defining moment. Uh, it was seven years. Um, and six years active but then I, okay yeah uh that you you have told a lot of stories of some commanders uh of what you learned what not to do at all and there there's probably more of those than a few examples of like really great leadership would you share the, I forgot, I know all of your stories have morals to them and some of them I forget, but 
I don't know what the moral of this story, uh, other than it was like a very traumatic experience where you were supposed to be on a plane in a mission where you got pulled mm. from it, but your men went anyway, and none of them came back. Or um, I don't know. There's certain stories from Navy that stick with me, even though I, I can't piece the whole thing together. Well, that was uh, so. I ended up serving on an aircraft carrier, serving on submarines, and then uh, ended up doing some flying missions as well. And uh, one of these missions was flying along the uh, Korean coast, down along the Chinese coast, and landing in in Bangkok or Taiwan or somewhere, and then returning. And when we flew down and we were doing both comment, which is com uh, communications intelligence and SIGINT, which is signals intelligence. And, and the gist of these trips was to test what the capabilities were of the Koreans or the Chinese or, or whoever. And, uh, and they weren't thought to be that dangerous because we weren't at war with Korea or the Chinese. And uh, it was crazy though, when we would fly into South other parts of Southeast Asia, where you would hear, you know, the men in the field and have actually have flak being uh, artillery being fired at you. But Korea and North Korea and and uh, China were not threats. So we this flew down. The Vietnam War. Just sorry. Yes, this is in the sixty-seven to seventy time frame. And <clears throat> pardon me. And uh, when we landed on, uh, I guess it was Taiwan, I got a message from our commanding officer informing me that there, he needed me back to the base immediately, leave as soon as you could, uh, let the team go back on their own because there was a surprise IG, Inspector General uh, mission that the commanding officer wanted me back to be able to help pass it. So, and I was head of a special department and uh, he, he wanted me there. So I came back uh, by commercial and a couple other ways. And I did not fly back on and with my team that uh, a North Korean MiG came out of nowhere and blew the plane up and no one survived. And that's uh, the story goes further is kind of one of those things that in retrospect, I'm, I probably anguish over more than anything. And that is at the funeral uh, for the men, a couple of days later, uh, I couldn't emotionally get involved in the loss and they were friends, they were great and, and everything about them, I should have uh, helped memorialize their their life. But all I could think about was, who am I gonna get to replace them? Because I know I'm gonna have to go out real quick. I don't know where I'm going or how I'm going, but I just know that I'm gonna be called on and who can I get that will follow, that will be good enough. And sure enough, two days after that, I've got another group and we're, heading out on a helicopter be, to be lowered into a submarine uh, going on station because President 
Nixon had said, no fourth-rate military power is going to do that to my Navy, launch them. And so the Navy was launching them. And I was going out. I had never gone from a, a helicopter to a submarine before with all of my gear on my back. And uh, it didn't land on the sub. We went down by cable. And none of the men had been trained. And it was, like you say, baptism under fire. Hmm. Yeah, I can't imagine. Those are very defining stories. And um, yeah, I, uh, I, I can't really relate to that, but I'm sure, it, you know, years later, you're thinking about um, stories like that and how, you know, yeah, but not living in the past, you know, trying to yeah. take lessons and, and move them forward instead of, you know, anguish in the past. I think, I think though, my pride in, in the Navy and my pride in, in being a part of what I went through, I was, we were so well trained that no one, no one knew what we were doing. And when you're that well trained, and I'm sure the military today can say the same thing, we have no idea of their capabilities. But you have that pride and therefore you're not really scared, you're apprehensive and you're of course, you're, you know, you don't know what you don't know, but you know you're so well trained, and the people around you are picked to be where they are, so that you have confidence that you'll figure it out. And uh, I was lucky, and and because it always doesn't work out the way you thought because of uh, someone doing something that no one that hadn't been done before. And in that case, uh, we were reacting to something that no one had planned for. Mm -hmm. So. You know, you have this adventure of being in Sasebo, Japan, uh, on a naval base there with you and mom and, and doing a lot of these special ops trips. And it was uh, a really kind of vibrant time of, it, of uh, a lot of activity. And then, you know, to go from that to coming back home to work with or for your dad like why why did that happen and and why did you kind of agree to that when it seems like in a young man's life that might seem kind of boring well there's a couple of answers number one as i was winding down the end of my tour it was a three-year tour there was a lot of interest from the military to keep me in, the CIA to be involved, for me to be in the CIA. And I was kind of burned out. I, I, uh, I was proud of what I had done, but the intensity of these missions were such that it, when I came back, uh, your mom would say, okay, you're mine. You're, we're going to go traveling. We're going to go into these little Japanese villages and, and, and just get lost. And I would say, no, 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 I'm, I'm on call. And, you know, someone's going to need to get me. <laughs> she said, if they need you that bad, they'll find out where you are. But right now you need to get back with me and, and the girls. And, uh, and so I really did not want to have a life where I was away from your mom and, and the family. And I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I sure didn't I knew, I knew I was at a point where I had to make a decision and I didn't know how to make that decision. I really 
was floundering. When your grandmother called, my mom called, and again, back in those days, when you're talking overseas, you're literally putting the phone between your legs and cupping your hands and shouting into the mouthpiece because the connections were so bad. But she called and she basically said, uh, proud of you, glad you've done such a good thing. And uh, I'm calling you to tell you it's time to come home. Your father needs you. He won't make this call, but I am. Come on home. And first she asked me, do you know what you want to do? And I had hesitated maybe a nanosecond at that. And she said, good, come on home. Your father needs you. And the rest is history. So one, when your mother calls, always respect her wishes. Two, she was right. I needed to have someone like that make that decision inevitable for me. And But I did come back, Ryan, to your point. And I hadn't had a business degree or, you know, I, I wasn't familiar with the jargon. There was a, a period of a couple years where I didn't know a lot of the things that people were talking about. And part of it was the accounting, the taxing, the, the gist of that. I knew how to lead and I had ideas, but I was floundering for a while. And I didn't regret it because I, was, I saw my dad did need me and I saw that there was an opportunity and I also was living in the time where we were trying to get out of Vietnam in the early 70s. And um, the, the, the discord that I saw in the United States over Vietnam really convinced me that it was good that I wasn't involved with that anymore. Plus, I'd had some personal experiences where I just didn't want to talk about Vietnam for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, we haven't talked about Buchanan Partners this whole time, and it's a big part of, I mean, your identity, uh, having been, uh, president, uh, for a lot since you were, what, 35? Um, or well, when did you take over from Granda? Again, back to your grandmother's wisdom, there was a time about, and it was about 1975-ish. She calls, she called my dad the old bull and me the young bull. She had the two bulls sit down at the table and say to the old bull, she said, Buck, that was his nickname, you know, we should make Bob comfortable that he has a future here. Let's tell him how and when we'd like him, for him to give to buy the business if he's interested and put a price to it. And so he can tell, see that he has a future that it's worth all, all the work he's doing that he can take over the business. And this is how you're gonna do it. So that laid out, if you will, a sense of my truly gonna be the third generation of the company. It had been started by my grandfather. He was more of a broker. My father was residential. And we were starting to do some land development that, that interested me more than just building a house. And that led to me being approached by a very big uh, oil firm that had a real estate subsidiary 
and they were interested in making me their local partner if I was interested in working with them. And I saw that as a huge opportunity because I'd seen how my father had always had difficulty raising equity or getting loans for some of his projects. And here as I'm being approached by a major industrial giant, if you will, and I ended up having unlimited funds, but I had to be pretty innovative. I had to learn how to make these, if plan A didn't work, plan B or even plan C be feasible. So I bought the company, but then I took the company in a direction my father did not think would be successful. And I think one of the most harrowing times in my young career was breaking, literally breaking my father and just saying, this is the way I'm going to take the company. This is where it's going to go. And he just completely disagreed. He did not think it would work. He didn't think the oil subsidiary, oil company subsidiary uh, knew what it was doing and it would be a disaster. And uh, later when it turned out to be anything but a disaster, he never would even have I was lucky. He, he, he just said I was lucky. And uh, that was frustrating because it was a lot of hard work. Yes, I was lucky in many respects because we were doing things ahead of the market, but we were getting, we were making it happen because this was that time that I mentioned earlier where the Washington area was exploding with all this federal funding going into local businesses. And we took advantage of that by building office buildings, office parks, and uh, mixed use. So to oversimplify what Grandad, where Grandad was comfortable and maybe his unique ability was in uh, building home, like uh, home building communities, right. uh, homes in the suburbs maybe, and yours is more, um, building mixed communities with office, retail, industrial, housing, like all together. Is that accurate? Yeah, we've, over the years, and, and again, um, I think I told this to you once, and I'll, and I'll tell it for everybody. I, not to brag, but at one point, uh, we were arguably the biggest office park, suburban office park developer in Northern Virginia, which was a strong market. And, and now when I go to those off, office parks, they're basically functionally and geographically obsolete because of the move back into, in, in no more suburban sprawl, more back into urban centers. And as you've seen with retail strips that are obsolete, you've seen with office buildings that are being repurposed for residential, et cetera. Uh, Buchanan Partners has been, has evolved into the ability to do multifamily retail uh, hotel, I'm about to do some hotel development, uh, residential uh, lot development and, and, and I know I'm leaving something out, but we've had the ability to do a mix of uses at a time where some developers couldn't make the shift from their specialty into uh, different kinds of product. And yet the, mark, the, the business has evolved 
and transformed for a lot of reasons in the past and more reasons in the future, just as we're experiencing right today with people not going into the office and yet getting whatever work that has to be done, done through technology and other means. That doesn't bode well for the office market going forward. And fortunately, we saw this. And in the last couple of years, we've been very involved in building up a huge portfolio of industrial and flex use uh, properties. So back to the time when your mom and your dad and you were talking about you um, being brought into the company and stuff like that. How many tears did you shed when I moved to Oregon <laughs> and my sisters were in Lexington and Seattle at the time and the window to have one of your kids be part of this uh, kind of not evaporate, but it just it just didn't work because we were each creating our identities in other cities and other industries. But it was like, had you thought or dreamed about one of your kids being involved in the business? No, not really. I didn't know what to be honest. I mean, you can tap into your emotions right now, if you will. I, I, I was surprised. <laughs> I was surprised, but not disappointed that no one wanted to have anything to do with it and that as i found out for a very good reason you all had seen what i had gone through with my my sisters and you did not with my owning the company and and uh and they're not being involved with the active operations of the company and you didn't want to have that experience and uh, i appreciated that and I would also have to say it led to my being receptive to um, my partners coming in in the, the late 90s and forming Buchanan Partners out of Buchanan Company. And that led to this diversity and this amazing uh, growth. And, and I would say there's no way I could have envisioned this without the, the partners coming in and pushing it because one was very financially oriented, one was more in construction. And we now manage, you know, a billion and a half dollars worth of projects. And I never would have been able to have accomplished that had I not had that diversification. And, and I think to my credit, uh, when they came in, I said, we're going to be doing this a third, a third, a third. And they said, you've got the name. Why are you giving us a third, uh, you know, two thirds? And I said, because we're all going to be doing whatever it is we do and you're going to be earning it. And uh, I might have the name now, but you all will be helping to grow and make it what it can be. And I think that sense of uh, appreciation as well as a feeling of, I felt very lucky that they came in and, and, and pushed me to be more broad and, and be, take advantage of some opportunities that I was not taking advantage of. Do you think, um, you know, obviously we rebranded as Thesis, which was empowering to the up and coming leaders on my team. Um, do you think that Buchanan Partners will rebrand in the next couple of years as 
Brian or maybe, you know, some leadership steps up? You know, that's a good question because when nobody knew who Brian was or Steve was a son of a, a very prominent uh, uh, contractor, but the name, the Buchanan name was pretty well established and, and uh, I was known for my public private partnership involvement throughout the region, as well as we had a very good uh, reputation for integrity and doing the right thing and by the and, and treating people right and doing products that were uh, stood the test of time. You know, I, I keep, I kept waiting for people to say, let's change the name. But the, the feeling has been, no, Buchanan's a name that's trusted. Buchanan's a name that shows uh, roots in the, uh, in the community going way back three generations. And, and our group is still relatively small and none of them feel they could ever come close to having the same name recognition that Buchanan has generated over the years. So I'm not saying that because I'm necessarily proud of it or, or anything else. It's, for them, it's kind of factual. And as you witnessed by that ULI award uh, a year and a half ago, that's a pretty, that's a, that's a pretty, that's a, has a high name recognition that comes with that award. And, and I've benefited from that as well. Okay, this is one of my last questions. Um, and I'm surprised we haven't gotten to any questions where we've really um, made an easy conversation harder because uh, you're really <laughs> good at that. I remember one time I'm walking out back in the woods behind uh, the house here at Black Butte and, and I was just like, oh, I think in, you know, a handful of years I'll partially retire here and it's just dreaming and it's fun. And you said, that is the stupidest idea I've ever heard. I'm like, dad, I'm talking like, in a little bit of time, you know, and he's just like, you're going to lose all credibility with all your network in Portland and all. And so anyway, um, I'm going to ask you a hard question in that what is, what is the hardest, most painful lesson you've ever confronted um, in three areas in your, I guess we were talking about business. So we'll start with business and personal life and then community efforts. Well, let me back up on a, do the last one first. On community efforts, um, being the son of a home builder, being a developer, really has been a stigma throughout my career, not from me and not within the industry, but from others who felt the developers were greedy and too rich and you know weren't any stalwart bastions of the, of the community. And I remember when I was running for a council uh, position in the city of Rockville in 1974. And uh, this guy who was, with, you were running for five seats. And so you weren't running against an individual per se. There were five openings and you were just running on your own. Anyway, this guy publicly just stood up at a, at a debate we were having pointed his finger at me and said, how could anybody even tolerate a developer being on this stage, much less the possibility he could be elected as council person? And I thought to myself, I was horrified, and I thought to myself, wow, I'm going to beat this guy no matter what. 
and prove that a developer can do a good job and, and be fair and understand what's going on. So, but that, again, you know, these bad moments can be motivating. Uh, the second one would be in business, uh, the fact that my father literally did everything he could to discourage me from going to be a partner with that oil company. Uh, it was, it was painful and I don't think we ever got, I ever got over it, uh, because he was so sure and he, he didn't realize that I was trying to cover what I saw were his weaknesses by having that strength of a partner. And, and yet when I did succeed, he felt it was just lucky that, uh, that's all it was. I was lucky. Personal life, I don't know that there's anything that, that I would say was, was so painful. Um, I, nothing, nothing that I can really say with any meaning that I could, I guess, I guess I'll give one example. And I mentioned earlier that I didn't talk about going, being a Vietnam vet for 10 years when I got back in 1970. And uh, the reason was primarily uh, my, my horror at being vilified by someone who was a neighbor. And this story's maybe telling, and, and I don't tell it uh, to, to uh, make people feel sorry for me. I tell it because I think it happened a hell of a lot. And that was, uh, we had moved into the neighborhoods, 1970, we moved from Japan. Mom says, let's have a, a cookout for the neighborhood and an open house and, and have everybody over and, and we can serve some drinks and grill some food and yada, yada. And so I'm, we're busy in the kitchen and answering the door and serving drinks and well, introducing ourselves. And uh, this guy comes in the door with his wife and, and, uh, and I literally had two drinks in my hand that I was going to serve someone else. And, and I, open the door and he's right there. So I offered it to him and he says, Hey, great to have you here. Where are you coming from? And I said, well, we came from Japan. And he said, uh, what are we doing in Japan? I said, I was in the Navy. And he said, well, at least you weren't in Vietnam. And I said, well, actually I did spec ops in Vietnam. And he took the drink from his wife and he took the drink in his hand and handed it back to me and said, Hun, let's get out of here. This asshole's a Vietnam vet. And turn and walk down the right out the front door. And I thought to myself, wow, I don't think I want to have that experience happening. And I was just standing there by myself doing, why would anyone do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not a proud moment in our history. Um, so if last question is a lot of what uh, I try and get at in this podcast is kind of life moments from our past where it's not a surprise where we got to where we are. And, uh, you know, you might've already shared that with um, a lot of life learning moments in the Navy. It might be in family and, in your case, family business or any of those things, but you know, we could end up uh, 
with a a life that is doesn't have a lot of meaning in it and not a lot of intention in it or you know obviously yours has a lot of both and i just wonder what kind of life moment um from your past do you credit with either the grit or the independence or the whatever that it's not a surprise where you are well i think Sometimes it's rare when you, you and you have your business and the people you've been interviewing have their businesses. And sometimes you're so focused on making sure that business succeeds and doing what you have to do in the immediate that you don't really give yourself credit for where you've been and where you're going. And you don't really have any of these aha moments that you share with yourself, if you will. And one night, and it was again, it was probably a time to stay alive to 95. So it was probably in the early 90s. And we were going through a real recession. And the real estate industry was really going through a big recession. And I was, I've always been very cautious about having enough funds and liquidity to do whatever I had to do, whether to keep things going or to, or to take advantage of an opportunity. But I was putting a heck of a lot of money into the company. And I didn't think about it very much. I just used to write a check to cover payroll or cover the operating costs, et cetera. But one night it was late and it had been a hard day and I'm writing an, another series of checks for pretty big numbers. And I'm thinking, whoa, you are, you, you know, you, you, you you need to think about this. You're just writing these checks like there's no tomorrow and everything's going to be fine. This thing, there's no end in sight. Your wife doesn't know you're spending a lot of your reserves and the money for the kids' education, et cetera. What in the world is your plan? And I thought about all the things I could do. I thought could close, reduce the payroll by letting people go. I thought about maybe trying to sell off some of the better assets to be able to hold on. I didn't know. I just thought, and then I finally said, you know what? One, I don't know anything else. Everything I've done made sense at the time. I've got a great team. I got to hold them together because this too will end. And when it does, we're really going to be well positioned. So don't be so upset. Be happy. You know, you're happy knowing what you are, who you are, and you're lucky enough, you've saved enough to be able to carry through, that's what you did it for. So what are you bitching about? Write the damn check and go home and have a drink and <laughs> tell your wife you love her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's super relevant to, I yeah. probably have a hundred entrepreneur friends, some of whom have had, you know, in the restaurant business or the small business retail have had to lay off their whole staff because of coronavirus yeah. and massive shutdown of the economy. And so that is uh, something a lot of entrepreneurs can relate to for sure. Well, and I think on that note, I, I don't think any of us have a clue how bad this is going to be. I think it's going to be bad and I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon the repercussions of it. But if we do get to know ourselves better, our families better, and we do value those things that are important and pay attention to that versus being on such a fast pace to, you know, that we've been on, 
there will be good that comes out of this. And I also think um, much needed change for us as a country to realize the important things and to close the huge gap that's widened between the haves and the have nots and the, to appreciate the people who really do deserve a lot more than they've been getting in the past. And I think, uh, I, I just hope this has been a wake up call for our country and, and that we can be far more united and far more uh, open and the, plan, the place where if you were willing to take a risk, if you were willing to fail, you could rise up and be successful. And I think the fear of failure cannot dominate how we, how we lead our lives. And, and this is, and it's going to test us. There's no question we're going to be tested. And uh, I just hope we have enough faith in ourselves that we'll do the right thing. Amen. I agree. I think we often can't control what our country and our country's leadership can do, but we can be super grateful for what is happening in our family and all the family units within our larger family and, and happy with the culture that we create in our company, which is like a second family and things like that. And so to be, to pull on your Japan days and be Buddhist in the moment of be present with what is happening there. Um, that is great because it, it's hard to live in the future and have a feeling that our memories tend to be really short as human beings. So um, let's just hold on to what is happening now on, on the good front uh, as far as really connecting and having, you know, better marriages and better relationships with our kids than maybe we've ever had. So um, there's definitely some silver linings in this, uh, in this kind of crisis that we're in, so. I think one of the things that's gonna be interesting is to how we, academic, academics respond uh, and how we look at how our kids can learn better. And we look at, uh, pre-K education for early childhood care and education. I think the whole, the reset button needs to be pushed in a lot of areas, not just healthcare, but in education as well. And of course, the things that you're doing with some of their many organizations of reaching out and getting people exposed to what life can be uh, with education, with good training. I think we have to, uh, we have to be more uh, cognizant of the importance of that because there's going to be a lost generation if we don't. Yeah, I think, I think this, if, as we look to this decade, we might consider it being kind of a hybrid life type of decade of using, you know, education. Uh, how can technology not be more embedded in education and e-learning and then in person, you know, the hybrid life of technology and in person virtual and all that and and in healthcare and in every facet of our life it's just um i think there's no way around it so well you're at the cutting edge of all that you you're the next gen that's going to be taking the lead and you're going to be more comfortable with the innovativeness the need for innovativeness uh it's going to be exciting to watch you i, I as one who normally doesn't want to be a bystander, I think uh, my role will be to 
hopefully mentor, answer questions, and or ask the right questions to get people to think about the consequences. But uh, yeah. you're on the front line. Well, I would just end with how proud I am of you and mom for everything, but especially for being able to execute the Zoom call. It's a lot of technology. <laughs> and so uh, I'm tested to the max here. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. And excited for you and mom to now be part of the cause and effect interviewee community that uh, you'll be joining our digital happy hours and such. So um, great interview. Thank you, Dad, and have an awesome day. Thank you. Good questions. Yeah. Yeah.